When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are Brendan Hodges' interviews with the visual effects supervisor from Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, Alex Wilka, and the film's editor, Eddie Hamilton. Your days of fighting for the so-called greater good are over. This is our chance to control the truth, the concepts of right and wrong for everyone for centuries to come. You're fighting to save an ideal that doesn't exist. Never did. You need to pick a side. So I'm here with Alex Woodcut from Mission Impossible, uh, Dead Reckoning Part One. He is the visual effects supervisor and Alex, thank you for joining us today. My first question for you is I think we're kind of living in a time where visual effects artists maybe don't always get enough credit for the amazing work that they're actually doing. So I thought mm-hmm. I would start. Is there a particular visual effect, a particular shot, a particular set piece that you're especially proud of in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning? Oh, wow. What a That's a great question. I mean, I'm so proud on behalf of of the whole team that sort of worked on this movie, and it's a a big team, uh, of all of the work that we've done. So it's kind of really tough to pick out one particular uh, piece of work. But I think kind of some of the work that we did uh, towards the end of the movie in in the train wreck, some of that work in there was, you know, for me, was, was really satisfying. It's kind of satisfying on a bunch of different levels. I think that the amount of uh, sort of work that went in behind the scenes to accomplish that, uh, you know, kind of is is my favourite aspect of it. You know, it's such a big team effort, you know, kind of going all the way from Tom's preparation and his, you know, his commitment uh, to his, to doing these stunt pieces practically all the way through to, you know, our collaboration with the special effects team, um, and, you know, all the way across the whole of the crew, uh, you know, it's a real accomplishment to pull off that particular sequence. Yeah, it, it's spectacular. It's probably my personal favorite in the movie. And um, that actually leads into my next question, which is obviously the Mission Impossible series is famous for its practical effects, its stunt work, things like yeah. that. But obviously visual effects are a huge part of the Mission Impossible franchise as well. So right. I was wondering, like, what do you see as your role in enhancing, uh, strengthening, or adding yeah. to what was already captured? It's yeah, it's interesting. It's it's a very it's a very sort of unique uh, sort of position on these films. You know, a lot of other movies, you're you're sort of realizing things that can't possibly be captured in camera. But I think with with these movies, you know, because Tom does his own stunts, you know, he's right there doing it really our, our job is to enable that um so i think everyone across the crew are really there just to try and 
you know provide provide Tom with uh, you know what he needs to pull off these stunts and then with visual effects you know what that kind of comes down to is there's certain there's certain safety aspects of of enabling him to do these stunts and we're taking care of you know removing those after the fact so whether that be you know some sort of wires or even just you know for instance with the the mountain uh, jump that he does the big base jump with the motorbike you know we're removing you know he did that for real but um we're still removing some of the ramp and we're removing some of those bits of safety protection you know so, so our job is a lot of cleanup um and also you know we're we're obviously kind of doing a lot more in-depth work you know we're doing uh sort of cg top-ups to things but fundamentally it's it's there to to support his stunt work and, and get him front and center Sure. Now, on the flip side, though, there are some totally digital elements in Dead Reckoning Part One, of course. One of yeah. them would be the sub in the opening submarine sequence. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I was wondering, does that push for authenticity in the movie, make your work on the fully digital elements a bit more of a hurdle? Do you think about doing them differently than you normally would? Yeah, no, very much. And I think I think the submarine sequence is a is a great one to to kind of help to illustrate that fact. So, you know, everything we're doing is is always rooted in in a photographic truth. You know, we're always trying to do things as authentically as possible, you know. So whether that's, you know, getting Tom doing his own stunts or in the sequ or in the submarine sequence, it's, you know, how how would we actually kind of shoot this for real if we possibly could? Um, so a lot of the original discussions were about, you know, do we do we shoot these as model miniatures, you know, because that's kind of, uh, you know, that would be giving it some sort of photographic credibility. But I think logistically that we we decided to go fully digital with those sequences. But the way that we accomplished them was, you know, we we kind of had a, we had a discussion about, you know, what are our favorite submarine movies. Uh, we were looking at Crimson Tide. We were looking at Hunt for Red October. You know all those classics, and 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 we were looking at how they accomplished those shots. And obviously, they did them with big model miniatures. You know, in the case of Hunt for Red October, you know they had a, had a big fruit warehouse, and they filled it with mineral smoke, and they had these great big miniatures that they sort of pulled through the space. So, so our approach to that in digital terms was to create recreate that that sort of sense of uh, volume you know so we we kind of we lit out we lit our submarine in pretty much the same way uh we had it kind of moving through uh sort of volumes you know to give it the underwater depth sense of depth so it's sort of it's it's almost like a digital homage to uh you know the way that we used to do those with model miniatures so it's kind of you know and that's that's a sort of a different form of authenticity in a way you know I honestly, it would not have occurred to me that you guys would have done it that way, just because it does look so natural and so real. Um, yeah, and you're and you're kind of and you're kind of battling with, um, you know, in in reality, you know, we had a we had a, this guy Captain Ratliff who was the commander of a U.S. nuclear submarine. He was our advisor uh, across that whole sequence, and then he was telling us that in reality, you know, when you're at a, a submerged at a certain depth your visibility is going to be almost zero within 10 meters. And that's just not particularly filmic, you know, right. it doesn't look that great. So we're, we're trying to sort of find ways of, you know, what, what are an, what, what's an audience going to believe? 
and you sort of come back to this point of well you know most people's experience of seeing a submarine underwater is is from these classic movies so therefore you know for an audience that's the reality that's how it would look uh so that's kind of pretty much the direction we were heading in for that yeah it's interesting thinking about the sculpting of the reality in a film because i think there's the cinematic reality which is very different right. from the one yes. you and i occupy and i want to go back to the train sequence mm. um christopher mccrory has talked a lot by now about how that was the biggest challenge of the movie he sometimes says maybe that was the biggest yeah. challenge of his career so speaking of cinematic realities what were the challenges from a visual effects standpoint throughout that sequence because i know some of it was shot on stages some of it yeah. was shot on location there's all these different rigs happening walk me through what your role yeah. was in putting all of that together so you know we we started off with the kind of very early conversations in pre-production about how we were going to pull it all off and you know the the place you always start with these things is what can we do practically and for me you know i I'd, I'd like to sort of push for doing as much in camera as possible because it gives us a, a great sort of frame of reference it gives it gives everyone who's working on it uh, a fantastic kind of grounding in what the thing should look like so you know we, logistically we start with let's do it for real and then we sort of you, you start sort of hitting certain boundaries certain challenges well we can't you know do a full train uh you know we, we're gonna have to extend the train we hired a track in Norway we hired a whole length I think it was around 12 miles of track off of the the train the the authorities in Norway so we we could get a train on the tracks and we got a whole bunch of beauty shots we got aerials uh we had Tom and we had Esai um up on the roof you know actually kind of duking it out for real and that that kind of gave us the the initial grounding, and we shot that quite early on in in the schedule. So we've got a good idea of what the lighting should be. Um, we know what the train looks like in the environment. We know what the environment looks like, but then we know that we've got certain constraints. You know, all of that we're going to have a lot of dialogue uh, on train interiors. Um, so that's obviously something that you know, just given time constraints, we wouldn't be able to do that on the actual train. So we know that there's a stage component for that that we're going to have to build in. We also know that, um, you know, there's there's going to be certain sort of, especially when we get into the derailed train and the train going over the edge, you know, the whole train wreck aspect. You know, with that, we knew that for because of, you know, we first of all, we wouldn't be able to actually hang a train, uh, you know, sort of over the edge of a gorge and get all of that. So we know that we're going to need to recreate some of that using rigs uh, on the back lot. And then around that, we need to sort of put in a visual effects uh, sort of environment, a world for all that to happen within uh, and allow Tom to accomplish the stunt work he wants to do. So there's there's a lot of logistics that goes into forcing your hand away from doing it for real. Uh, and our role within that is really just to kind of facilitate that and, and, and enable it. So when we're in Norway, you know, with, with all this planning in in mind, we we shot a whole bunch of footage uh, of the train uh, across an array of cameras on either we mounted on either side of the train. So while Tom and Esai are on the roof uh, doing all their stunt work up there, 
we're also shooting plates of the environment they're traveling through, which we can then put outside of windows for our stage work. And then uh, beyond that, while we were there, we had quite a big team that would be constantly photographing the environment, we'd be LIDAR scanning the environment, uh, we'd be shooting uh, sort of as much reference as possible. And from this, we can create uh, an extrapolated environment for the whole train crash at the end, which is, you know, which is true to the environment that we've established with Tom in Norway. Um, and it and it kind of feels natural and it feels real because it is it's based on bits and pieces of the Norwegian landscape that we're piecing together. So there's you know there's a lot of planning that goes into these things and and as you said you know because we're shooting this across an extended amount of time across stages backlot we're in Norway uh, at one point we were up in uh, the north of England on a railway track to just kind of shoot some aspects of it there. There's a lot of this that all needs to come together into a cohesive whole. And that's a lot of what our work is, is, you know, put, either adapting environments. So when we're in the north of England, we have to make it look like we're in the Alps or slash Norway. Uh, or when we're on stages, making sure that what we're seeing out the windows tallies with what we see when we cut outside the exterior. And then when we're replacing uh, the whole of the background, when we're on the back lot, it needs to be something that's believable as a digital environment. So, you know, that's that's kind of largely what we're doing is, is trying to make sure that everything sits together in the cut and that everything shares a commonality in terms of the environment. That makes sense. And I'm wondering then, getting realism on screen for some of these shots is kind of only half the equation because specifically right. when the train is hanging over the cliff, yeah. And, you know, the audience is going nuts at all of that. All of that kind of hinges on two things, really, uh, Tom and Haley. But then also I, not only the realism of the digital plates we're seeing outside of the train windows and doors, um, but also the danger that we can sense yeah. there. Well, so I was going to ask, how do you yeah. create that sense of danger in those moments? Because digital effects there's a large gap between when they can feel really dangerous and when they sometimes go, oh, well, that's a great shot, but that's CG. How do you create that sense of danger regardless? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting thing. And it's and I think what's unique to this franchise is the fact that Tom does his own stunts, right? Yeah. Uh, and he also insists that, you know, his fellow actors uh, also do the same thing. So what that means is that, you know, we're we're putting we're putting actors into into positions of you know. I mean, it's safe because they're on harnesses, they're on wires, and what have you. But they're in, you know, they're going to be really they, at some points. We're going to be suspending them, sort of, you know, a couple of hundred feet in the air. Um, you know, we're going to be sort of there, there'll be a lot of rigging around them, which we're going to replace. But the performance you're getting through putting putting your actors into a real situation is goes you know a lot of the way in in selling a shot to an audience you know there's 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 kind of you know there's some of it isn't acting some of it is actually just you know this is this is a troubling situation that i'm finding myself in so and i think that goes a long way to selling an effect and i think if you have if you have that in your actors and if you have that sort of emotion and that sort of danger baked into a plate that you're working on 
when you're putting something in behind it, then it's obviously, you know, uh, it, it's kind of it's selling it. It's selling the shot for you in a way. Right. So it makes your job a lot easier. I mean, having said that, um, there are a lot of things that we're doing with our with our digital environments as well, where, you know, we're, we're trying not to be sort of too over the top. We're always thinking about, you know, if if we could actually shoot this practically, you know, what sort of depth would there be to the to the uh, the canyon that we're putting this train within? How much distance is there going to be? You know, we don't want to go over the top. It shouldn't be like with thousands and thousands of feet in the air. And in fact, we did actually at one point we went to a quarry uh, in the north of England. We suspended a carriage off the edge of this quarry and, and dropped it into the quarry. And that and that became the background for uh, you know one of the shots, the classic shot where Tom's just hanging on, and you see this carriage drop below him. That's that's a, a practical plate, you know. And again, it kind of touches on this idea that uh, you know we're trying to do as much for real as possible, and and basing our reality off of that sort of realism. So it's something something that the audience can believe would actually be true, and starts to blur the line of. Was that a plate or was that a digital environment? I don't really know. And and both can be equally believable at the same time. Right. To pull them all together and make them cohesive. Um Yeah. Yeah. And not go over the top with, you know, what you're what you're trying to do in terms of a visual effect. I think often things come undone when visual effects are sort of become almost just over the top and unbelievable in terms of their physics or, you know, the logistic logistics of how you would shoot that for real. You know, and I think that sort of starts to break the suspension of disbelief in some ways. Yeah, that makes sense. And you've worked on projects for Batman, James Bond, um, something with, you know, all CGI dinosaurs, some animatronics, yeah. but a lot of CGI dinosaurs on yeah. Fallen Kingdom. And I'm wondering, you kind of have run the gamut then, in, in a way, from practical to virtual effects. Right. What did you bring from all those projects to Dead Reckoning, which has a very high visual effects count? I think a lot of people don't realize just how high the visual effects number count is for the number Absolutely. of shots in this film. But it also, obviously, is probably the best movie of the year to foreground practical effects. So it's kind of a perfect marriage between the practical and the, yeah. the virtual. So I'm just wondering, with your background, how did you bring all of that to this project? I think I mean I think every every project you do kind of gives you something new you know it gives you something different um to add to your arsenal and I think you know with so for instance my experience on uh sort of working on some of the bond films was was really good grounding for for mission because it's another context where things are done practically you try and shoot as much photographically as possible you know so that that sort of was was a real help. I think other projects give you other other kind of aspects of to put into your tool belt. You know, there's uh, there were a lot of logistics involved in um, you know sort of working on the Jurassic film that kind of really helped in terms of capturing environments. You know, for that movie, we we sort of went to lots of different locations. You know, and, and you you sort of learn how to what's important, and you start you start to recognize what are the the key parts of an environment, you know. So there were there's there's different things that come in uh, from different movies for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, we're running out of time here, so I'll, I'll leave you with one last question. And I'm just so curious. 
Um, when did you sign on to the project? Because I'm wondering how the pandemic disrupted the timeline for your work on the film. I mean, is it possible that it helped some of the visual effects? They could cook longer or did it just make it more of a crunch at, at the end, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. It's I mean, I, I came on in, in 2019, um, so pretty early on in the process. The So the pandemic was obviously it was... It, when we had a lockdown uh, there were multiple lockdowns and i think for those you know it kind of gave us a little bit of a little bit of time to evaluate sort of how we were going to do things so when when production would go on a hiatus you know we would we would still be working um even though we're all in isolation you know we would we would have every day you know with tom with McHugh, we'd be on we'd be on zooms with all the hod's for at least 3 hours every day just talking in detail about each sequence, how we were going to achieve things. And, and to that, you know, to that intent, it was, it gave us a, you know, it was, it was really useful, but I think, you know, there were, there are other aspects that made it quite challenging. For instance, when we go to Rome uh, and we're, you know, the, in, in Rome, it was still kind of a time of COVID, you know, um, and the streets were empty. So on one hand, that means it's great for us in terms of, you know the car chase locking down streets you know it's fantastic on the other hand it needs to feel like a, a buzzing city so there's a lot of visual effects and actually kind of putting in vehicles into the streets around the car chase and putting people you know passers-by and extras digitally into those shots you know so that's an interesting one yeah that makes sense that's where i was going to go because rome does look like a bustling you know european metropolis uh right and I know that in like Mission Impossible Fallout, there were a lot of digital cars added, but a lot of stunt vehicles as well. But the Rome chase seemed like it was a step even above that, where there was probably even fewer stunt drivers, even fewer uh, extras on set because of that. And honestly, you can't tell. Was that primarily dig digital effects to add that stuff in? Yeah, I mean, you know, whenever you see Tom uh, or Haley driving or Pom uh driving you know that's them obviously driving and that's kind of stunt drivers uh tom driving you know one-handed that's all him um but then you know just to to add that sense of bustle we're adding a lot of you know parked cars uh on the sides just to narrow the streets a little bit but also a lot of traffic you know so when he goes into the um you know what we call the wedding cake at the end of uh imperiali via imperiali uh, and he's going around the roundabout the wrong way. You know, there's there are some stunt drivers in the mix, um, but then we're extrapolating outwards and adding a lot more volume uh, and things like that. So yeah, it's kind of, we're helping out. Let's put it that way. <laughs> sure. Well, thank you so much for your time, Alex. Your work on the film is sensational. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. So, Eddie, congratulations on the movie. I'm here with Eddie Hamilton for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. And hearing about how these movies are made in the Mission Impossible franchise, anyone who's paid attention to the behind the scenes, they know that this is kind of an ever-evolving, shifting 
uh, process, right? Where you're always hunting for the best version of what this movie yeah. could be. It sounds that's it's true really, from the outside in. It's almost like magic or wizardry that these movies turn out so well when behind the scenes are always moving and shifting and evolving, right? So I'm curious from an editorial yeah. point of view, how do you see your yeah. role in honing and shaping a movie that's constantly shifting around in the edit? That's a good question. Uh, okay. <sighs> Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present if you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. So I've worked with Tom Cruise and Chris McCorry since 2014. And this is my third mission with them. I'm very privileged to be invited back. Obviously, we worked on Top Gun Maverick as well very closely for two years. And there is a lot of trust in that relationship. And there's a lot of faith in the process. And Chris McQuarrie is a very, very gifted visual storyteller. I am constantly astonished at the insight he has into precisely what the audience needs to see and hear to create the correct emotional response. And so I, I, I very much trust him and the process. What that means editorially is that I know the film will evolve and that it will be fluid for quite a long time, but ultimately we'll end up with a great end result. And I lean into that and I don't let myself get too worried about the, the details of the edit and the pace and the structure. And I know that we all care passionately about the end result. We care passionately about the audience having a great night at the movies. It's all we talk about every single day. And I was on this movie for, you know, over two and a half years. And so the process, I start sketching the scenes together. I don't worry too much about whether, um, the, the whole thing is going to work too much. I just, I just start More like on a scene by scene basis. Yeah. In other words, like on a scene yeah, by so, scene so basis. As they're yeah. filming, as they're filming, I start sketching stuff out, knowing that it will evolve a lot. But I don't worry too much about that. It's always very fat to begin with. Chris McQuarrie doesn't worry too much about music and sound design early in the process. We work almost entirely mute with just dialogue, and. We, for a film like this, it's the first cut that we did was four hours and we'd never watched it all the way through until we sat down in a theater with 70 people and pressed play and watched it. And, the, and there was no music and very little sound design. So it was quite a spiritual, silent movie experience, <laughs> but still a, a very um, enlightening experience to sort of feel the movie working for the first time with an audience and listening to their feedback. And then and then we dive in and the hard work starts of really compressing the film and 
evolving each sequence, working on the intercutting, balancing all the story and the emotion and the characters, making sure it's exciting, making sure that no scene outstays its welcome, and then bringing in music and allowing that to inform the process. And and listening to the audience, you know, screening the film for friends and family, screening the film at test test screenings, you know, with a blind recruited audience, really listening, uh, not fighting any notes because the audience is always right. Um, it doesn't matter what we feel about the movie. If it's not working for the audience, we, we think, right, how are we going to make this better? How are we going to improve it? How are we going to either use editorial or a bit of additional photography to figure a way through? And eventually, when you're working with such a long movie like this, you're you're compressing every single moment as much as you can, so that the the film never take never stops, so that the audience is absolutely you know emotionally engaged on the edge of their seat, literally from the first frame all the way to the end. That's what we're trying to achieve anyway. And there's a point where we go through, I mean, every day we're going through the scenes multiple times, but there's a point where we're literally going through every frame of the movie, analyzing it and going, do we need this frame? Do we need this frame? Do we need this frame? And we do that multiple times through the movie to make sure that every single tiny emotional nuance is right. We go through every dialogue scene, trying lines of dialogue out, putting them in the very sensitive to the audience feedback of like this dialogue scene is too long, you know, that kind of thing. But we we have tried every version of every dialogue scene with the with a combination of lines out and in sometimes no dialogue and then the audience is confused about something later in the film so we end up like feathering little bits of dialogue back in but we don't settle until the movie is absolutely working for as many people as possible and and so that's the process and it, it's a lot of work. I mean, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and then months and months and months of going over and over and over the film, constantly saying, can this be better? Can this be better? Can this be better? Can this be better? Sometimes 20 or 30 times a day, we're going through a single scene, watching it going, does this nuance work? Does this nuance work? So hopefully when you watch the film, it all just seems to flow almost effortlessly. But really... You know, the easier a film is to watch, quite often the harder it has been in, you know, in in the the, the production and post-production of the film to get it to that point where it just feels like it always should have been like that. You know, Brendan? Yeah, no, that I imagine that's always the goal. And another thing with yeah. like with each Mission Impossible movie kind of uh, going right off your amazing answer there, each one of these is visually and rhythmically different. What's in front of yes. the camera, behind the camera, etc. And obviously, that's yes. because we change directors every movie. And now with Christopher yes. McQuarrie, he's continued that ethos with each one of his movies. None of uh, none of them look or feel the same. And I'm wondering how much of that is discovered in the edit when you're trying to finesse things. So, like for example, in Dead Reckoning, this I think has a greater focus on close-ups than some of the other Correct. Mission Impossible movies. Um, a, a, obviously, a lot of mounted cameras, lateral spinning camera movement, things like that, but also yeah. much shorter shot length than yeah. a lot of the other ones. So I'm just wondering, like, especially like with the close-ups and the shot length, was that something from the compression you mentioned, or was yeah. that just a real choice going in? That's a very good question. And it comes down a lot to the experience of the director so Chris McQuarrie has evolved emotionally as a visual storyteller. 
you know, over the last, you know, eight or nine years that I've been working with him. And he has understood about lighting, about cinematography and lenses more. So if you talk to him about Jack Reacher and you talk to him now, his understanding of composition and lens choice is vastly superior than it was back in 2012, you know, when he did that film. And we've got different DPs, obviously, and, and they they do lend their own sensibility to each film, you know, which is why I think they all feel different. But honestly, you know, Chris never used um, a tripod or a dolly on this movie. The, the camera's always handheld or on a steady cam, so it's always got a kind of nervous, slight, you know, energy to it. Now, the close-ups is interesting because, Chris, we want to make sure that you are engaged emotionally that it's, the film is like incredibly emotional and subjective from the beginning and the way to create a relationship with the characters is to be quite intimate with the camera it's it's quite like the way that tony scott used to shoot with a lot of close-ups you know because the fastest way to create an emotional connection with the audience is with a close-up of someone's face, you know, with behavior and emotion present in, in the in the performance of the character and or, you know, using a music cue. But basically a close-up of a face with a, with a really strong composition, with a great lens and great lighting will cr instantly create an emotion for the audience. And humans are meaning-making machines. So we're constantly trying to derive meaning out of everything that we see all day. And when you're watching a movie, you're you're in the moment you see a face, you're starting to build a character and a story about that character in your mind. And Chris McCrory feels, and I believe, and I and I subscribe to this that you know information is the death of emotion in a film. So we're always trying to make sure that every scene stays truthfully emotional all the way through. And so the wider the camera gets the less emotional the shot gets, right? So the longer the lens, the more emotional, the more intimate you are with the character. And the wider it is, the more it becomes about geography. And it becomes about um, understanding the location that the characters are in, you know? So, and, and the wide shots that we have in our film, are they're usually hinged around a, a prop of some kind or there's common geography. So you'll see a close-up of somebody and a character in the, in the distance you know, in the kind of for well background or mid ground or background, and then you'll cut to another character, and that same character will be behind. So you kind of build a common geography. You know, and, and there's a big dialogue scene at the beginning in the Department of National Intelligence. There's only two wide shots in that like 12 minute scene, but they're both very deliberately chosen to to show you the geography and and put the characters in an emotional position to introduce Kittredge as he walks over to TV and back. But that's all very much by design from Chris as he's evolved as a visual storyteller, you know? But yeah, we the, the, the shot length is a side effect of compression as well and needing the pace of the movie to, to uh, feel um, fast so that you, you, you never feel ahead of it and you're kind of like leaning forward all the way, you know, all the way through. And it's a very fine balance. Honestly, we go through the movie and we get to a point where we've taken out just too much air and then it becomes, the scene starts to become just pure emotion and sorry, pure information. And, and you just see things happening, but you don't feel anything. And then we end up putting air, like tiny bits of air back in. And then you start to reconnect and start to feel the emotions of the character. So it's this real fine line that we're playing with 
literally from the very first second of the movie all the way through the you know the two hour 46 minute running time whatever to to the end so that you you stay emotionally engaged you know yeah i i do and i think it's successful in that and springboarding off that i was actually going to ask a question with that yeah. great editorial expression information is the enemy of emotion so thank you for teeing yeah. teeing me up so i have one question about information one question about emotion in the edit for the information yeah. question this is probably the densest plot of any mission impossible movie it, at yeah. times it almost feels like a john le carré novel in how labyrinthian yeah. the spy games are and how much information yeah. uh, is being thrown at you for example you know who's working for whom are they working for a government are they working for themselves you have people in one government yeah. with different motives etc yes and this is something yes. i enjoyed almost most about the movie just it gave you yeah. that great feeling of this is a real spy movie albeit with yes. ai i'm wondering what was the difficulty of creating a plot with so much information because the information in the movie strikes me as you're it's not always but sometimes trying to overwhelm yeah. the audience and feeling lost in this spy yeah. game but it's such a yeah. fine line right yeah it is challenging and i will say that you know we're very sensitive to that and chris mccrory is uh you know he he likes ambitious storytelling right and he likes you he likes to kind of play with the audience and i i don't think that audiences really mind being treated as very intelligent right so right. if you kind of if you ask the audience to do the work and keep up then they they appreciate that kind of respect i feel now that's not to say that we can get over, we can get too far and and like people check out like McHugh is very aware that people will 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 um will drift out of the scene occasionally which is why when we're cutting we're also using precise cuts on certain words to kind of jog you back into the story to make sure you pay attention at certain points so that's why we're kind of crossing the line in the middle of scenes and stuff to kind of make you sit up and like and like go what what that was weird but you're kind of you're keep you you kept you're being kept visually engaged because we know that we're kind of asking you to keep track of quite a lot of stuff. Now, McHugh is relying on you to tone out a little bit, but I do feel like you get enough, you understand enough the first time you watch the film to stay engaged all the way through. And then there might be more, you know, the second time you watch it. But our the collaborators that work with Chris trust him, right? Because he is... And, and, and let me assure you, all the scenes are overwritten. Like there's more dialogue that we shoot for every scene because he wants to modulate how much the audience may or may not need at any point in the movie. So we're we're constantly aware of the fact that the audience might need a little bit more here or or less because we're overwhelming them with stuff. So so we're doing that. We're playing that balance all the way through. But I agree with you. These movies tend to have kind of quite labyrinthine plots where you're not quite sure, you know, if, if you had to sort of summarize the film at the end, you'd be like, well, I, I think this. But <laughs> as you're in the process of watching the movie, you understand enough to be engaged with each sequence, which I think is the the the, the kind of magic trick that they pull off. And Chris McQuarrie is a master at this. You know, he he helps 
on Ghost Protocol with this exact thing of, of making sure that you understood the stakes for every single sequence. So everything kind of landed and all, and all the, you understood, you know, the geography and what the characters were doing and the stakes and what would happen if they succeed or fail. And he's done that, you know, for all the successive movies. And I think that he, he wanted to make this one kind of more ambitious, but um he also wants, having said that, he also wants to serve it to you in a way that makes it easy to watch. You know, your eye is guided around the frame, so you know who you're being connected with. All the graphics we revise, we revise for ages so that when you see them, you instantly understand the story in like half a second. You know, and this, you know, the film relies quite heavily on graphical interfaces to to tell you, you know, where characters are and and you know the face replacement in the airport and the you know, Benji's voice coming out of his laptop when he's guiding Ethan around Venice, all that stuff. But but all there's no detail that's too insignificant for us. You know, it's like every single tiny moment is poured over many, many times to make sure that it works as well as possible. And that that does come from the top, from Chris and Tom, right. you know, and we all contribute to that underneath. And, and you know, but we don't settle until it really we, we feel like it's working as best as it can be. All you the found way that right, that right balance. And I mean, in the case of Dead Reckoning, it's you. basically like a tech paranoia thriller. You know, yes. I, I know that he's a great fan of, you know, um, Three Days of the Condor, etc. Yes, yes. And, and there is a bit of that. So a bit of confusion, I think, is actually important in the storytelling. Yeah. And, and it's finding when to allow the audience to not quite sure what's going on and when to have yeah. clarity. But OK, so my, my final question for you. Eddie is about the emotion in the edit. And this is something I feel like not many people have actually commented on in the film, whether it's critics or just discussion on the internet. Yeah. But a big surprise for me watching this is that Grace, Haley Atwell's Grace, basically becomes almost the main character for a big percentage yeah. of the third act on that magnificent train right. set piece. Right. And obviously, yeah. Ethan is a big part of it. And the bike jump is spectacular. But she gets the arc. All of the uh, yeah. action hinges on her choices, her character, That's her behavior. Correct. Was that something that was deliberately put into the film before it was happening? Or was this something kind of discovered in the edit as you were shaping the film to focus it, it more, wasn't, and more on her? It wasn't discovered in the edit. It was always like, I remember having, I was at a breakfast with Tom and Chris when we were filming in Norway, when we were filming the bike jump in uh, 2020, August 2020. And they were discussing what was going to happen on the train. And I remember there was a moment where Chris McQuarrie said, I know, Grace should dress up as the White Widow with a mask. So then we get Vanessa Kirby playing Hayley Atwell, playing the White Widow, which is just delicious, right? Because then you've got two actresses being able to flex their muscles. And People kind of forget that it's Vanessa Kirby. You know what I mean? It's like yes. you, you, you're connected to Haley Atwell. You're connected to Grace, but but Vanessa Kirby does such an astonishing job of of like inhabiting her mannerisms, and you feel all the correct emotions for her. Now, yes, this is these are protagonist-driven movies, and we do. Tom does. You know, Haley. Sorry, Grace becomes the protagonist for for the majority of the third act. And that's quite unusual to kind of change points of view quite so dramatically. And we were aware of that. And that that balance was very tricky to find. But 
What's interesting about Grace's character, I think, is that you're watching somebody who goes from very selfish at the beginning to very selfless by the end. And she, you, what you're seeing is the journey that Ethan and Benji and Luther, to a certain extent, went on when they were joining the IMF, you know, when they were offered the choice, which is this kind of new mythology that we invented for this film. So you're you're kind of understanding a little bit about Ethan's history and Benji's history and Luther's history, because you're seeing Grace, you're seeing Grace transform as a character. And, you know, she's an orphan. She no one's ever cared about her in her whole life. And Ethan says, you know, your life will matter more to me than than my own. And that's, you know, if you're an orphan, that's all you've ever dreamt of someone saying to you, which is what your parents would say to you, you know. So it's very emotional for her. And I think that um it was it was an interesting choice, but I but you know, and the balance of like, you know, Ethan riding the bike and we know that everyone's seen the behind the scenes. So everyone knows he's going to jump off a cliff. But there's going to be a point in the future life of this movie where potential audiences have not been saturated with, you know, behind the scenes, you know, marketing pieces. And, you know, if my kids watch this with their kids, you know, whatever, there won't be this kind of in collective consciousness um, expectation that Tom's going to ride a bike off cliff, you know, that everyone knows that that's going to happen. So the movie will have a slightly different resonance to like other generations who watch it in the future, maybe. But but we are we are aware of that. But it was always designed that way. The idea of of, you know, Vanessa Kirby doing quite a lot of the heavy lifting acting wise. It's a very fun thing that Mission can do. That, that not many other, some other movies do kind of, you know, identity switches and stuff like that. But but when it's like in this kind of genre, it's uniquely a mission-y kind of thing that you can do. And it's not always about the action. It's sometimes about the suspense and these like very um, delicious sparring actory scenes, you know, when you've got Henry Cerny and Vanessa Kirby kind of sparring and the coverage is beautiful and, you know, the, the, the they're both on fire and, you know, it's really great fun, that kind of stuff. So that was always designed is the answer. And, uh, you know, we were aware that Ethan was going to not be the protagonist for that kind of, it's like 17 minutes of the movie or whatever it is, you know, and you can feel it when you watch it and we know the audience, but, they're also very engaged with Grace as a character, so you kind of don't mind being on the journey with her for a bit. And Haley Atwell um, is unbelievable in Dead yeah. Reckoning too, and you're, yeah, you're just yeah. glued to it, the screen to watch her. It's very, yeah. I mean, the, she had a lot of faith because the way that McHugh allows the actors to work is that we they play a lot on the set, and she gives us a lot of temperatures of different readings for each scene. And McHugh lets her kind of loose to play. And I remember Vanessa Kirby was very nervous on Fallout because McHugh was encouraging her to try all kinds of playful things. But we found this delicious kind of chemistry between her, between the widow and Ethan for Fallout. So when Hayley Atwell came on to Dead Reckoning, Vanessa was able to go, you have to trust the process. It's going to feel quite alien to, to you for you as an actress because you kind of want to know where you're going. But let just have fun and play and trust McHugh and Eddie because they won't they will only put good stuff in the movie and you will be great in the film. So just just have total trust in them. And that's that's kind of what Haley did. She one, she trained 
So she, you know, really focused um, training physically to have the stamina to work, to act in a movie for such a long time. And it's really intense. The days are very long for an actor on these films. And, you know, her diet was like absolutely, you know, exactly what any human would want to be eating, you know, very healthy food every day, all the stuff that we dream of eating, but we can't because we have busy lives. And, you know, sometimes we want a Snickers, you know, <laughs> um, and so she really worked hard and I think was ready in her career for something as ambitious as this. And McHugh had a lot of faith in her, had been wanting to cast her in. Like, I think uh, she was up for the Rebecca Ferguson part in Rogue, you know, to play Ilsa back in the day. Um, and she wasn't available. I, I don't know quite how that worked out. But, you know, I think Chris is always Chris and Tom really wanted her to be in the film. And she just brought it, you know, and it was a, a great joy every day to work with all this amazing footage. It's very time consuming to edit because there's so many choices. But you've got like an, a fabulous captain in Chris McQuarrie who's steering the ship with confidence. And then, of course, a great producer with Tom Cruise who has perfect objectivity and will come in. And he's he's involved in the edit all the way through. I mean, he really is not micromanaging, but checking in on a daily basis and watching cut scenes and then watching reels, watching the whole movie and, and giving us his input. And, 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 you know, he's rarely wrong with his notes, you know, and sometimes we have healthy disagreements like any creative process, but, um, you know, usually Tom is right because he's been doing this for so long and has more experience than anyone else doing this. And so it's, it's a real privilege to have him as a, as a, you know, banging the drum for the movie, you know, with, with great objectivity in his role as producer. Okay, well, we're out of time. Thank you so much, Eddie, for going through all of that in such detail. That, that was incredible. And- uh, Oh, bless you. Thank you, Brendan. I'm, I'm really grateful. Thank you for having me on. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Brendan Hodges' interview with the visual effects supervisor for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, Alex Wooka and the film's editor, Eddie Hamilton, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is up for your consideration in all eligible categories for this year's Academy Awards, including Best Visual Effects, Best Sound, and Best Film Editing. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you all so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. 
You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.